Thanks for downloading show 66 of the C-Suite podcast being recorded in partnership with the CFA Society of the UK as we're producing this episode at their professionalism conference that's taking place at the impressive venue of the Guildhall in London. My name is Russell Goldsmith and I'll be chatting to some of today's presenters and we're looking to cover off a number of the conference themes including how professionals in other sectors are adapting to changing needs, what people now believe about professionals, how technology will change the definition of a professional and finally what the CFA UK and CFA Institute in particular are doing in response. So lots to talk about and with so much to get through I thought I'd waste no time in introducing our first guest who is today's keynote speaker Dame Helena Morrissey. Dame Helena is the Head of Personal Investing at Legal and General Investment Management and is also the Chair of the Diversity Project. But it's been a particularly busy 12 to 18 months for Helena as last year she was named one of Fortune Magazine's World's 50 Greatest Leaders and the Financial Times 2017 Person of the Year. She was appointed a Dame in the Queen's 2017 Birthday Honours List and her first book, A Good Time to Be a Girl, Don't Lean In, Change the System, was published just a few months ago. So I've got to start by saying congratulations on all those achievements but would it be unfair of me to ask what the highlight has been out of that list? Um, out of that list I must admit it's lovely to get sort of accolades um, uh, like the damehood and the uh, awards and so forth but actually finishing and publishing my book you know because obviously a lot goes into it, it, it I found it quite difficult actually to uh, construct a book I write a lot I talk a lot but I actually a complete coherent book is a different matter and I had something I wanted to say I hope I managed to say it, but you know, I suppose that was the one that I put most into. Brilliant. Well, <laughs> congratulations again on all that. Now, your keynote address that you've just given here at the conference was titled The Language of Truth, Fake News and the Opportunity for Honesty. Now, of course, that's very timely, not just because of what we hear regularly in the news, but it also refers to that issue of building trust within our industry too. And interestingly, the CFA UK's own report, The Value of Investment Professional, so it's a report that they released in April 2016, stated that in their own member survey, less than 20% of respondents thought that the profession is held in high regard by broad society. And this was very much backed up by the 2018 Edelman Trust Barometer that you obviously featured in your talk, where, so I'm just quoting out of that, when comparing uh, the level of trust of businesses globally across different industries, they stated in the report that for business industries to do what is right, as, as they wrote it, the financial services industry came out as the least trusted. Now, I should say, again, that's globally, but it, but it doesn't bode well, obviously. How can we address that? Well, I mean, we've been trying to address it uh, quite intensively, I think, since the financial crisis, but clearly without effect to date. And I think we do have to look at the whole issue through a new lens. I think we've been trying to do sort of like initiatives to talk about ethics and to talk about why we should be trusted, whereas actually what people want to see is that we do what we say. And um, I think, frankly, if I was going to say it in a, as few words as, as possible, that we need to get out more. Um, we need to be participating in the big debates, the economic, the policy debates um, of the country and influencing, uh, because clearly this sets the context for investment. A lot of people don't know what fund managers do. Uh, they don't realize that we are taking you know, pools of savings, um, aggregating them and helping companies grow by investing. I think we need to educate, not to be self-serving about it, but so that people understand that this is about prosperity rather than sort of self-serving actions. So yes, be, be louder and prouder. 
I wanted to um, talk about uh, diversity that uh, is something else that you were talking about earlier, um, especially uh, given your role as the chair of the diversity project. According to another statistic from that CFA UK April 2016 report, women represented at that time just 20% of CFA UK members and uh, just over one third of all new candidates for the CFA programme in the UK. And uh, you shared some similar findings from your own survey from the diversity project that were very similar. Can you tell us some of the work that you're doing with the diversity project, but also how in general more women can be attracted into the financial services industry? So I think improving diversity in all its dimensions, uh, socioeconomic, gender, ethnicity, sexual orientation, etc., is really important if we're going to, as part of the building trust, because we don't look like those who we serve. And I think also young people expect to join companies where you know, the existing talent looks like themselves as inclusive as a culture. And at the moment, we maybe unfairly got ourselves into this sort of vicious spiral where we are struggling to attract different talent. I think that the uh, work on the diversity project is, is, is hard in some ways to capture very briefly because we are trying to tackle so much. We are trying to do a sort of all dimensions of diversity, but all stages of the career journey as well. One thing I learned from leading the 30% Club for many years was that actually, obviously, there's no silver bullet. And a lot of this is about really revolutionizing every aspect of the hiring, of the management, of the developing talent, um, making sure that we are not sort of just sticking to past practices. And, you know, that takes a lot of work by a lot of people. But the Diversity Project has now about 50 members, including the CFA Society, as we mentioned. And I think we've got some momentum. We haven't got the results yet, but we've got some momentum. One of the uh, key aspects of this conference is looking at how other professions are adapting to changing needs. And how would you say the financial service industry compares? Well, we are starting from behind. I mean, I think that the gender pay gap data that was recently published, which had the financial sector at the bottom, as in the biggest pay gaps, and fund management sector was poor within that, just captures that we have very few women in the senior roles, and we have very few, as our survey showed, ethnic minority fund managers. We have very few disabled people. So we are behind. I think we are late to this party. The good news is there's a lot of effort to think about new ways of working, about using agile working. We are an industry where our success is measured by numbers, which gives us a great opportunity to create different patterns of working that aren't about you know, sitting at the same desk after a long commute. We should be more creative at this stage. So I think we have the opportunity to leapfrog rather than pay catch up. And so finally, if our listeners want to find out more about the Diversity Project, where can they go to? So www.diversityproject.com. Very simple. Uh, That's great. And a great start to our podcast. Dame Helena Morrissey, thanks for taking the time out of the conference to talk to us. Thank you. Joining me now is the executive editor of Wire, Jeremy White, who is providing the closing keynote at today's conference. Can you give us a sneak preview of some of the areas you'll be talking about? Well, I'm going to be talking about the rapid rise of AI, or seemingly so, over the last few years how that's actually come about, and then crucially, bring that around to try and talk about how artificial intelligence or machine learning is being used to give businesses or industries competitive advantage. Um, And in light of that, how that actually being used and how the professions can actually use this as well. This is being used in many professions, including journalism as well. So there are many examples where this is being used right now. We don't have to look far into the future to see how businesses can actually gain advantages from AI because there are already 
good examples of it happening right now. Specifically on that, what I actually wanted to ask you, you know, in relation to the financial services industry, is whether or not you see AI as a threat or an opportunity to help professionals working within within that. AI is a tool. It's like considering AI to be a threat or an opportunity is like would you consider a spanner or fire to be a threat or an opportunity? It's not a threat or an opportunity. It's how you use it that it becomes a threat or an opportunity. So, for example, would you have considered the invention of the cotton gin, for example, to be a threat? You know, it actually brought about the Industrial Revolution, of course, but the idea that AI is going to bring the downfall of professionals, that's not the case. It is a tool to be used, and the, the clever people, the savvy professionals and professionals, will be using artificial intelligence to make their work better, to be able to crunch enormous amounts of data so they can tailor whatever they do, their offerings, be it financial uh, or creative, to exactly who they're trying to reach and using that in, to get ahead of their competition. Now, there are other people that think that AI is going to be a threat and is going to take their jobs away. Now, this is going to change people's jobs, the rise of artificial intelligence without doubt. However, how it changes them is really governed by us. And it's a matter of, you know, it's a matter of debate about how that will actually happen. But the key thing to remember is that it is neither a threat or an opportunity, it is what you make it. And on that basis then, how urgent is it that they get on board in terms of, I suppose, transforming their business to attack the, the new technology? Well, the fact that it's happening right now already means that there's a sense of urgency in order to at least be aware that these sorts of things are happening. And that's what I'm going to try and talk about today. I'm going to try and t to say that to the people here that at least you being aware that these things are going on already puts you ahead of much of the competition. But actually to act on it as well, you know, even though we are at this sort of early stages, nascent stages of AI being used competitively in business, you know, now is the time to adopt these practices or at least look at how it might be in, uh, implemented with what you do and how you can serve your customers. Any other technologies that our listeners should be aware of that you're going to be speaking about today? Well, there's lots of noise around blockchain and there is a few examples, there are a few examples that are actually very interesting. We're starting to see some very good examples from serious businesses using the blockchain to gain advantage. Uh, one good example is TUI, the, uh, the sort of very large travel agency group. They have moved their entire hotel inventory onto the blockchain, saving themselves millions, and also meaning that they can cut out banks in order to they can deal directly with their customers in terms of booking but also the most crucial thing is it has allowed them to have a real-time bang up to date inventory of what rooms they have available at what prices because before they had disparity between the different jurisdictions and they were selling the same hotel room at different prices in different jurisdictions and that was obviously a problem for them but also now they have they've solved that in one stroke They've reduced their costs, their server costs significantly, and their system is now much more efficient and much more accurate. And that's just the beginning of the advantages. And you know, companies like, and then you look at people like banks, like BNP Paribas, and they are now doing all of their international money transfers using the blockchain. Mm. 
and you know this this sort of adoption allows companies to actually gain an advantage and not see it as some sort of threat or some sort of wizardry or sorcery that they really don't have to get involved with it's actually not that complicated to understand the blockchain it's quite simple and how you use that in business um, can give you, you know, significant savings and advantages. And in terms of, as you say, using the technology within business, what about in terms of how the technology will change the definition of a professional? Because that's one of the, the themes of, of the conference today. Do you have any thoughts on that? How AI will change the uh, definition uh, of yeah, professional? Yeah, yeah. Well, like, as I said, I don't think, it, it, I don't think, hopefully, I don't think it will. The professional, you know, it's not just a matter of ticking boxes. You know, a very good professional, be it in the financial world or in the journalistic world, it's, there's a certain creativity to it and a certain amount of creative force involved. And that, those are the things that AI really will have very great difficulty in trying to capture and trying to emulate. AI really will be a workhorse. It will be able to crunch huge amounts of data for the professionals and be able to free them from a lot of drudgery in their workplace. And we're already seeing that in the legal sector, for example, AI being used to, to read long legal documents for lawyers and then spot inconsistencies uh, uh, in a 200, 300, 400 page legal document, rather than have the lawyer go through that on their own and obviously charge their client. This is not something that we need necessarily do much longer. And that is, only going to benefit or make professionals better, in my opinion. I can't see many cases where AI will take the place of professionals. It will augment them and hopefully make them smarter, more competitive and financially better off. Jeremy, I couldn't resist asking this extra question while we've got you on the show because, and it's on a completely different topic, and this is one about Facebook, but it's, it's off the back of something that I read on Wired. Basically, you guys have a, your, your Wired UK Facebook page has over 115,000 people who have liked it. Your US counterparts have a page that has 2.8 million people. The article I was, I was going to refer to that I read on, on the site earlier this month, it's an opinion piece by Roland Manthorpe, who's your senior editor. And it was an open letter to Mark Zuckerberg that, that started, and I apologise to listeners in advance. It started, You're going to say this, aren't you? You're actually going to say this. I'm going to say this. It says, dear Mark, f*** you. <laughs> now, we probably have put a beep on that for the edit. It went on to be a pretty damning piece about data and how Facebook uses it, which I, and I've got to say, I'm not just saying this because you're here. I thought it was a great read. And Roland says he is not on Facebook and has never been on Facebook, um, but with such a big community of your own on, on the platform, what... What's your thoughts on, on all the issues that have been playing out in the media over the last few weeks and, and the value to you as a media in particular? Because I, I was just looking at the engagement levels on, on your two pages, so the UK and the US one, on Facebook, and some of the posts on, on the channel, are, you know, in terms of engagement levels, are pretty much non-existent. So it's clear you're going to have to, it's basically pay to play to get anyone to engage on it. So I just thought, while I have you here, what, what's, your, what's your thoughts on, on this whole issue? Well, I, first of all, I wholeheartedly agree with Roland's article. I mean, what's interesting, the most interesting thing about that piece is the fact that even when you're not on Facebook, they can, they can construct uh, a, a grey profile, a sort of profile of you, uh, garnered by what you have done on pages where there is Facebook-like buttons and things like that, and also where your people that you know, your colleagues and contacts that are on Facebook as well. So they can not only do they build up a detailed profile of everyone who's on Facebook, but also they can put a, build up a very pretty detailed profile if you're not on it. I'm not on it either. 
And so I was very interested to, to read that. Um, um, have you ever been a Facebook uh, user? I have had an account which I don't use. Right. I had an account uh, which I started a long time ago just to see some pictures that I had to look at. And I log in probably once every two, three years. You know, I don't like it and I don't like the idea of it. So it's not, I'm not the only one in technology journalism either that feels that way about Facebook. Where we get to a point of what we do with Facebook, it, the, the US version of uh, Wired also did a really, another really good article uh, uh, by one of our uh, writers, and they, they catalogued how actually, if you look back into the history of Facebook, time and again, Mark Zuckerberg has, has, has apologized for doing something very much like this, a breach of data, a breach of trust, and then been pushed it to the wire, been caught, been caught in some way of breaching the trust, and therefore, and then apologised, and then moved on, apologised, moved on, and it's a matter of, if you look back in that timeline, you think, well, something, some lesson is not being learned here, where, you know, they will go somewhere until they get enough pushback, and then they will change the, uh, you know, they'll move the goalposts. Um, well, and I suppose that does link back to what a lot of the, the themes of this conference today in terms of trust. and Exactly. I mean, unfortunately, we haven't been able to see what the financial effect of all this. The, the uh, results that have just come out uh, yesterday and this morning don't reflect what's happened because they go up to the run up to the point just before this whole crisis for Facebook actually came about, this latest one. And so what we have, we don't know the financial impact of it, but I'm not sure there will be a huge financial mm -hmm. impact the apathy of the general public is not to be underestimated. You know, you really have to offend them very strongly in order to, in order to lose them if the service is good enough, if the service is useful enough, if they like it enough. I have a friend who works for a very large music company in the UK and they have branches in the US as well. And I was talking to him about this and I said, you know, have you deleted your Facebook profile? And he said, to me that if he had to, if he, if he worried about what people saw he was doing online, he'd have to delete everything. <laughs> and it, that was a very flippant response on his remark, but it does, it does you know, remind you that people will forgive, unfortunately, a great deal if the service is good and in what they want. And that's the trouble with it. You know, like, and it's a great thing that you can see this in product design and, and, and gadgetry, for example. If something looks really good but is actually useless, people will be very scathing about it and get rid of it very quickly. If something actually is brilliant, really useful, but looks a bit ugly, you know, they will forgive it and keep using it generally. And Facebook is one of these, th one of these things. It's a, it's a service that has an ugly side, but it's really useful and people like using it and so they'll forgive it a hell of a lot. Excellent. Well, I appreciate you uh, giving us that little bit of extra insight, but for now, thank you for joining the show. Thank you. I'm now joined by Ben Page, Chief Executive of Ipsos Mori, who has just finished a presentation on the subject of trust and the state of Britain in 2018. Uh, ben, uh, unfortunately, we don't have quite as long as you had in your presentation just now, so um, could you just give us a quick overview of what you spoke about today? There's a lot of uncertainty around, and if you look at our news media as a way of understanding what's going on in Britain, you would see this country divided over Brexit, divided by age, split between London and the rest of the country. You know, you can portray the country as sort of divided and fragmented. And what I wanted to focus on today is actually, rather than looking at the problems, we should look at the many, many things in this country that actually unite us. 
things like the National Health Service, actually the monarchy, um, the our values, which are much more shared in many ways than than you would believe. So you know, attitudes to homosexuality. People agree that gay marriage is now fine. That's a completely different world than 40 years ago. So Britain actually is in many ways more content, more liberal, and more at peace of itself sometimes than the, day, the daily news headlines might have us think. The bit about Brexit, though, is, is, is interesting for me on the trust part of, of the talk. Because I wanted to ask you about your Ipsos Mori Trust in Professions report and how the financial services industry in particular fares within it. Before we get to that, though, how would you say all the communications around Brexit has impacted on our trust of politicians and what we read in the news through social media now? Well, I think that all of the coverage of Brexit, to be honest, has made absolutely no difference to what we think about politicians. We've, as, you, as we've been tracking this since 1983, there's been virtually no change in the proportion of people who say they trust politicians to tell the truth. And Brexit has made no difference at all, really, in any substantial way. Really we've never trusted politicians. We don't trust them now. We haven't, you know, and in fact, my favourite ever survey was August 1944, done by a man called George Gallup. He asked the British, do you think that the politicians in Britain are acting in the country's interest or in their own interests or in, or in their party's interest? August 1944, as we fight the Nazis in northern France of a coalition government, we're all in it together. And even then, only 35% thought the politicians were acting in the interest of the country. Amazing. So nothing's changed. Nothing, things ch sometimes things change a bit less than we might think. That's very interesting. But what about, okay, so bringing it back though to trust in the financial services sector then, um, what, what's been the trend in terms of the last couple of years and how well, how well mean, does that compare to other professions? I think, I mean, uh, financial services is singled out by um, experts when we poll them on a regular basis as being the industry with a reputation problem and having some of the biggest challenges. Actually, trust in business as a whole isn't, isn't particularly collapsing, and it, it's varied, but financial services does have a lower level of trust than, say, for example, retailers, mm. and it needs to be cognizant of that. I think there are, there are also variation, dramatic variations within financial services that can also tell us something. One of the things I talked about today was you know, the drivers of trust, having a clear purpose, being transparent and open, um, uh, reciprocity, so you know, giving something back. People think supermarkets do that. But of course, if you look at the financial institutions that are most trusted, building societies, uh, massively more, even when they're operating as banks, they're massively more trusted than banks. Because of course, the idea is that they're owned by their members yeah, rather than anonymous shareholders and overpaid executives. So it, it really does depend. But there are, you know, there are lots of things that, that, that we can do. But we shouldn't, but even, even if you're a, the biggest bank in the world, you shouldn't perhaps beat yourself up too much because trust isn't collapsing. Um, financial services and unbanking, I suspect, have always been a bit suspicious. And there are things that you can do. One of the key themes of this conference is how professionals in different sectors are adapting you know, to the changing needs of their clients. What, what, what's your thoughts on that? Well, I think the main drive, which we are all part of, is a drive for greater transparency, obviously for greater professionalism, for clear standards, uh, and you know, more accountability. And that, 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 that it, it applies to every single profession. It's, one of, again, one of the big shifts in society over the last 30 years. Previously, professionals were just, trust me, I'm a professional. Now, uh, you can say what you like, but somebody's going to be regulating you and there will be more rules. And that, that is inescapable. Um, I think we should embrace that. Choose the, you know, it's about managing risk. But it's also the things that we can do are more about building, being more open and transparent and engaging. You know, so talk about the decisions that you've made. Talk about why you've done that. Show, and also as as any business, um, forget professionalism, but any business, showing what you do for the country, showing where you invest. Um, those are the things, and having a visible leader uh, really, really help. 
finally, Ben, if, if listeners want to find out more about your Trust in Professions report, where's the best place um, to go? Just go to www.ipsosmori.com and you type away, type in their trust and you'll find everything you need. That's great, Ben Page. Thanks for joining the show. We'll be back after this quick break to chat to the CFA Institute's Managing Director for Amir Gary Baker and the Chairman of the CFA Society of the UK, Jerry Fowler. It's harder than ever to keep track of everything being said in news and social media. It's even more difficult to gain actionable insights that will improve your reputation and results. Karma provides global media intelligence services to help you communicate more effectively. From automated media monitoring to expertly crafted PR measurement reports, Karma delivers what matters. For more information or to schedule a free consultation, please visit karma.com. That's C-A-R-M-A. Welcome back to the C-Suite Podcast with me, Russell Goldsmith, which we're recording at the CFA UK Professionalism Conference in the Guildhall in London. And next to join the show are the CFA Institute's Managing Director for Amir, Gary Baker, and the Chairman of the CFA Society of the UK, Jerry Fowler. Uh, good afternoon, gents. How are you enjoying the conference so far? All good so far. Very yeah. good so far, thank you. Good stuff. Jerry, let's come to you first. I just wanted to really get a, a, a feel for what the key messages that you're hoping delegates will be taking away uh, from today's event. Sure. So CFA UK has a mission to build a better investment profession, and that really centres around three things in our mind. It's lifelong learning, connecting professionals in a professional network, as well as advancing professionalism. Now, all three of those point to really advancing professionalism, uh, and today is sort of an encapsulation of that. What is it to be ethical as an individual and to be professional as part of a professional body? And that means putting investor and client and society's interests first. Well, that leads uh, nicely onto a question I wanted to ask you, because um, I was keen to get your thoughts on a quote that Paul Smith, the CFA Institute's president and CEO, uh, made in the CFA's uh, UK uh, April 2016 report, where he said that the biggest disparities between what an investor expects and what they receive uh, relates to fees and performance. Um, Gary, let's come to you first on that one. What's your thoughts on that? So it's it's a big topic. I mean, it's um, I mean there are various aspects and strands to it. I think one one is uh, the very essence of marketing and what's promised, or whether that's you know explicit or implicit promises, and then obviously what's delivered at the other end. And I think the industry rightly gets a lot of criticism on that front end of marketing. I think the transparency of jargon and and uh, performance and fees has got a lot of questions. And then, yeah, they've done a, a better job on actually delivering um, in terms of, you know, obviously markets have been a lot, a lot healthier in the last uh, post-financial crisis, last 10 years. But they haven't really got that trust re-established because I think still think that there's an implicit uh, problem in terms of how they're presenting themselves to many investors. And that's still a core thing that we've got to address as a, as a profession, as an industry, to improve that level of transparency and communication as well. Jerry, anything to add there? Yeah, I think it's, it's um, no surprise that those two are the most important things. If you think about an individual thinking about their money, they think about their revenue, which is the performance, and their costs, which is their fees. So when you boil it down, those are going to be the two, the two things they're most interested in. Uh, and what they really care about is making sure that you don't that expectations aren't missed, that the performance that they expect to receive for the risk that they're taking and the fees that they are paying for that match what they are being told in the first place. So 
uh, the conversation around fees and, and uh, performance is a lot around regulation at the moment, but a lot of it can just be around making sure that clients are able to trust the information they're getting from their advisors and their investment managers and the investment producers. Yeah, Gary, the, the CFA Institute uh, represents more than 150,000 members, and I believe at last count that's made up of 151 local member societies across a similar number of countries. Is there anything we can learn here in the UK in terms of professional standards from those other societies? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I, I, I think it's one that we've got to be prepared for the answer as well. It's all right asking those questions, but if you then just ignore what the result is, then, you know, and what you find is that, you know, we have great, no great monopoly on professional standards necessarily. Yes, we've got a, a history of very strong professional standards that have built up over time in the UK, but equally other countries have come at it perhaps in much later or much more recently but they've caught up very quickly because I think they've approached it without the baggage that perhaps we've had. Some of the incumbent firms have not been as strong. So the core line of regulation and business practices has been able to be set quite high. And firms coming in and individuals participating in those countries have had to go in at that level as well. So, you know, I don't think we should be too um, prissy about, you know, we're the UK we must have the best regulation in the world, or the US similarly. You know, there are other really good examples as you go around the world that have built up very effective market structures that we can learn from as well. I think what's really interesting about this uh, question is that it's it's a very powerful brand, um, CFA Institute being a professional body that can act globally, the, inv- the investment profession, and that the CFA Charter is becoming that gold standard because we were talking earlier, but the globalization of capital does mean that there's a, a, a homogenization of um, professionalism around the world and standards around the world. And that's part of the reason, it's not just social conscience as to why we're all talking about ESG so much at the moment. I do believe a lot of the reason we're talking about ESG is because you've got much more um, diversity in ESG standards across a much more integrated global capital framework. So there's that homogenization process that's underway and uh, the CFA brand and the CFA charter is an important part of creating a set of standards amongst professionals and the firms that they're operating in around the world. And uh, for the benefit of our listeners, ESG is? <laughs> Environmental, <laughs> social and governance standards. Well it, well, it all links nicely because obviously you mentioned earlier about ethics and value, which is you know, the key things that we're talking about here. Um, but I also wanted to ask you about another topic that's high on the agenda in other sectors too, and, and that's the need to have a purpose within your organisation. What's your thoughts on that? Yes, there's a lot of discussion at the moment around the model of capitalism and should uh, in, should firms be required to uh, satisfy the needs of their shareholders. Uh, and, you know, I was actually at a uh, dinner the other night where it was raised that, you know what, in banks, the equity shareholders are a very small component of the capital structure. Maybe bond holders should have actually a dominant say in what happens within a bank. And that's just one example before you even start talking about other stakeholders that firms need to represent their employees. And, Um, society of different forms. Mm. So uh, firms do need to be very clear about what their purpose is. Uh, Surveys are showing that individuals working for firms want a firm that has a mission and a purpose that they agree with. Uh, And and that's as important in investment management as it is anywhere else. Uh, So doing these surveys uh, to ascertain exactly what it takes to to be ethical and professional and the aspirations that people have to work for firms like those is very important. Yeah, and I, I think picking up on that, I mean, we, you know, if you go back to what our mission statement is, there's a sort of key phrase at the end of it, which is for the ultimate benefit of society, which sounds incredibly lofty and, and idealistic, but I think it's absolutely crucial that 
we're not just trying to raise standards for the sake of raising standards. I mean, there is a purpose to that, that you're trying to improve how people operate, how they respond, how they look after client interests for the ultimate benefit of society. And, and there has been a lot of conversation, I think rightly, that trying to re-establish what, what is the purpose of finance. And in asset management, investment management, which sits at that core of, of trying to make good decisions and allocating capital, understanding what the role of finance plays, of making sensible and good decisions on linking ideas with capital to end up with a greater combined wealth for society is a really important thing that we don't do enough time we don't do enough to actually emphasize that to the end investor. Yeah. And, and, and Gary, I'm just sticking with you for a second. I'm guessing I know the answer to this one anyway, but do, do you believe every firm within the industry should insist on their frontline investment staff taking the CFA program? Yes. Um, <laughs> That's a very simple question, wasn't it? <laughs> no, I mean, look, I think more broadly, what, I, what we should insist on is that people are qualified to do the jobs that they are doing to the very best of their potential. And I think part of that is pure, you have to have a competency framework, you have to have that knowledge and skill level, and you have to give frame, a framework, an ethical framework in which to make decisions. Mm -hmm. Now, we think that CFA provides that. We think the charter is a very effective way of giving you that financial education. But to be honest, if it comes through different directions and different avenues, I'm quite happy with that as long as we're raising the overall standards for the industry. Excellent. And so, Jerry, here's your opportunity. We've hopefully got a good percentage of our CFA UK members listening. If they wanted to get more involved in the society, what can they do? Well, they should definitely get in touch. I mean, Gary was just talking about the need to, for a standard, and I believe that the CFA Charter is a standard that we can use. But really what we're trying to do as step two after we make it a standard is to have people recognise it's not just a credential. Once you are a charter holder, you're part of a profession and part of a network. And having a broader responsibility to support and grow that includes things like volunteering to enhance it. And that's a really great, um, rewarding experience for many people. So you can get in touch. There's any number of ways where you can help build a better investment profession and also get plenty of uh, networking and, and interesting opportunities yourself. And just to give out the website address, I guess? <laughs> CFAUK.org. Fantastic. Uh, Gary Baker and Jerry Fowler, thanks so much for joining the podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. Joining us now is Patrick Hudson, who is Professor Emeritus in the Human Factor in Safety at Delft University of Technology in the Netherlands. Uh, Patrick is one of the world's leading authorities on the human factor in the management of safety in the oil and gas industry, uh, also in commercial aviation, mining and in medicine, and has advised clients such as Shell, ExxonMobil, um, as well as Boeing, Airbus, British Airways, and in fact a long list of major global organizations. And he is also the chairman of the International Expert Safety Team uh, for the European Union's research nuclear reactor uh, so you may well be asking what he's doing at a conference for financial professionals um, and I'll therefore start uh, by asking him that very question uh, welcome to the podcast Patrick you're here talking about how high hazard industries such as aviation and the oil and gas uh, industry manage safety so um, what are you doing uh, talking to a group of CFA UK uh, professionals well I'm talking about organizations and industries that have had to learn to cope the fact that if they get it wrong, there are very severe consequences for people, for assets, and for other things like their reputation. Of course, yeah. And I think the same applies in the financial industry. Uh, you don't get it, people don't necessarily get killed, but there's a lot of damage gets done, reputations get scorched, and 
these are all industries that I work with that have moved from being pretty terrible, run by cowboys and macho people, uh, which maybe some of the financial industry used to be a long time ago. Right. Uh, up to people who really do this professionally. I think it comes in with a theme of the conference very much. And they do it, they get it right. And so I'm going to be telling people about some bit more detail and about the kind of things that they do. Uh, learning, to le learning to like your regulator, uh, which is tricky and takes a bit of practice. Uh, doing proper management of the safety and, or in the broader sense, the risks so that you know what's going to hurt you, what you're going to do about it. Uh, and finally, ensuring that you've got a culture which makes you do the things that you know you should do. And when things go wrong, we've learned from dealing primarily with fatal accidents, which is that everybody knew what to do, but they never quite got round to doing it. Mm. And many learned judges in the United Kingdom have written like Lord Justice Sheen on the Herald of Free Enterprise and Lord Cullen on Piper Alpha. There was always something more important. We were going to get round to it, but we hadn't got round to it when things went wrong. The, um, the, re the reputation is, is something I want to come on to uh, in a second. The, this element of, of regulation, though, can, can you go into a little bit more detail on, on that? Because I know that's a key thing that, that you're, you know, one of the key lessons that, that you want this industry to learn from other industries, isn't it? Well, especially in aviation. Aviation is very highly regulated. And that's one of the major reasons why it's so safe and has been so safe for a very long time. Now, aviation didn't used to be safe. But what aviation did was every time something went wrong, they had a crash, they learned from it. In fact, they call it crash and learn, was the way they went about it. And the learning was inevitably taken up, not just locally by an airline or by an aerodrome, but was taken up by the regulator, in this case, the United Nations regulator, ICAO, uh, and was enshrined in what they call standards and recommended practices and meant that once they've learned what to do and what not to do, everyone's got to do it. And they've gone along with this. And uh, this really contributes to the, way, the major reason why when you fly, the dangerous bit is getting to the airport and from the airport and whilst you're in the arms of the, of the airline, you're pretty safe. In terms of the culture that you, that you touched on, can you sort of go through the different types of culture that, that you might find in, in an organization and how you can get to the right culture that you're looking for from a business? Yeah, I have, there's a model that I've developed based upon a slightly simpler model from a guy called Ron Westrom earlier, but it has five levels. Uh, and four of the five are different forms of what we call safety culture, and one of them definitely isn't a safety culture. And you can apply this to risk as well. It seems to work really well in all sorts of areas. The, the, most, the first one is what we call pathological. Really, they don't give a damn. Uh, they're uh, only interested in getting the job done and not being caught. They're not the absolute worst. There is a level below them that we call a criminal, uh, and we're not going to be getting into that. No. But the pathological aren't criminal, but they will raise, if they see a corner to be cut, they'll cut it and hope no one notices. Uh, and when things go wrong, the person basically closest to where it does go wrong is the one who gets the blame. And people further away don't because they say, well, I told you, like, be safe. What more can I say? Now, that's what we call the pathological, and they're not a real culture of safety. They're, and one of the things that they're 
really bad at is actually is managing their risk. They think they're good. They think, hey, we make a lot of money. To which I say, well, some of the organizations I work with that do it really well, they make a lot more, the Shells and the Exxons of this world. And then there's four, four levels that we distinguish going in an ascending order. First of all is the reactive. You're not very good at it, but every time something goes wrong, you react, rather like aviation used to, crash and learn. And because you keep on reacting to things you hadn't thought of, you look like you're busy all the time, so you're really involved in trying to get things right. And you have to learn to move to another stage we call now the calculative. It used to be called bureaucratic. But I found that people will admit to being called calculative, but I'll never met anyone who will freely admit to saying, I'm being a little bit bureaucratic today, and I'm using the spreadsheet. Mm. And what they've done is they've really organized themselves and worked out what are the things that are harming them most? What are the things that, in fact, are very rare? What are the things that actually work? What are the things that don't work? And trying to organize and prioritize and get themselves into a systematic way of approaching the problems that they're facing that are hurting them. And that culture is a very good culture, but it's a little bit um, obsessive. Uh, and also, it has another problem, which is that it's very good at treating the problems we used to have and the problems we had this morning, but may run into problems with something coming this afternoon or tomorrow morning. And that's when you want to start moving your, your gaze from looking backwards as to what we've done to looking forward, what's coming next, yeah. becoming more proactive. So we call that the proactive culture. And that's the one that a lot of the organizations I work with, and in fact, whole industries, really want to become. I was in Abu Dhabi last week, and everyone's talking about trying to either be proactive or stay proactive, or even go on to the final stage we call the generative, which is where you've really got your act together. You're really, really good at doing these things, and you also stand back from saying, we will tell you how to do it, to going back to giving the people who are actually faced with the problems uh, the trust that they know what they're doing, and that means that we probably equip them, we've given them the resources, the training, and they're the ones who are actually doing it, and we should, as quite often as management, be listening to them. And so the generative is one where sometimes I like to say that they've got their towel. They know where their towel is. They know how to do these things properly. Uh, and they, they are trusted, and characteristic quite often of a generative organization is they can be left to get on with the job without having someone leaning over their shoulder and watching them. Coming back to what you said earlier, you know, obviously within oil and gas and aviation, in some instances, you know, unfortunately you could be talking about, as well as billions of dollars, that it could be the potential loss of human life. I'd like to think most professionals listening uh, to this, of course, there was a critical situation within their business that they wouldn't have that to consider. But of course, it comes back to what you said right at the start about reputation. And, that, and that's something I'm keen to listen more about what your thoughts are on, on, on managing that. Well, when we think about risk in these high hazard industries, we think in terms of people, hurting people, maybe the worst case, killing people. We think about uh, damaging the environment. Uh, and the case where both of those happened was the Macondo blowout in the Gulf of Mexico that I was involved in, where the environment was really the biggest issue. Uh, then we've got the assets, the assets that you've lost. And the assets in these businesses are not cheap. An aircraft will cost you maybe between 150 and 300 million dollars. A decent-sized oil platform will quite happily set you back $800 million, uh, although I can get you some cheap if you ask and buy some more. 
but the final one that we learned was to add in was reputation. And the oil industry had to learn that the hard way. Shell learned it, for instance, with the Brent Spa uh, incident, where their reputation was the thing that really took the hit. And BP, with its disaster in the Gulf of Mexico, uh, took a massive hit on the reputation for the company. And a lot of people didn't really want to work with BP because they thought they don't know what they're doing. They don't know how to manage these things. We'd rather not have them on board. Now, things have got better since then and they've, I think they're back on track. But reputation, we also discovered, is that you can have a small damage to your reputation, doesn't cost you a lot. You can have a medium damage to your reputation, doesn't really cost you a lot. And a little bit more than that, and it costs you your business. Yeah. It's the one that really ramps up most rapidly. And when your reputation's gone, it's an awful lot of hard work, as BP discovered, to get it back again. Of course. So if you wanted to um, give our listeners one piece of advice from this podcast, what, what would that be? Well, I think I've probably already said it, which is find out what to do, find out the right thing to do, and then do it. And that's, the, that's what a professional does. And I think my last word on what the professional does is they have the self-discipline to do the things they know they'd rather not do, but know should be done anyway. Patrick Hudson, thanks for joining the show. So joining me now is leadership coach James Parsons, who has just finished running an hour and a half long workshop here at the uh, conference with CFA UK members that was titled The Hidden Drivers of Ethical Behaviour. So James, is there an ethics problem within the financial services industry? Well, interestingly, when we had a poll that was done this morning in the opening speech, quite a few participants feel that there might be. I'm not sure that it was statistically significant. It wasn't a very big population. But whether or not there is or there isn't, there's certainly that perception, even in the room, and this is amongst investment professionals, and obviously from what we read in the press outside as well, there seems to be. But I would say that most of the problems that we find that happen in whether the City of London or elsewhere have been really... The, the product of malfeasance, I suppose, is quite rare. Most things are just people who get tired, try to do the right thing, and sometimes just get it wrong. Or architecturally, their firms are not set up for success. Sure. So, so can you summarize some of the areas that, that you covered in your workshop? We divided teams into thinking about four pillars of potentially hidden areas of, uh, or, or I guess hidden sources of potentially unethical behavior. The first one was culture. To what extent do the firms facilitate an open culture where people can challenge openly without fear of threat? To what extent are there uh, architecturally, the second pillar, ways in which people can take their concerns offline in a way that isn't as draconian as whistleblowing? How are meetings run? How do hierarchies and structures affect people's ability to escalate issues or even just have an honest discussion? How well do the third, uh, the third sections, uh, so what, what, what we call social networks, which doesn't mean social media, it means what are the informal networks that exist in the businesses currently? Are there lots of silos? Are there secret little clans? Um, and who are, the, who are the bridge builders between those? How does one go about trying to uh, eff effectively smash silos? Because one of the things we find is if information isn't freely flowing around an organization, problems that start quite small can become somewhat more serious. And by the time they get to management attention, they can often be whether out of control on that, on that way. Yeah. And then the final one is, uh, the final of the four pillars is well-being, which is one that most people wouldn't think of when we think about regulation, compliance, and ethical behavior. But in fact, the science is very clear. If people show up tired, if people have 
personal things going on at home that they're then, of course, being human beings, bring into the office. If there isn't a way in which they feel that they can say, I'm not showing up at my best today for whatever reason. I could have a young family. I could have a young baby. And I got two hours sleep last night. I'm not in a state to make a really important decision today. If you don't have that kind of thing in place, then, of course, again, the wellness agenda becomes very inextricably linked with potentially what can ensue yeah. ethically. And, and out of all those areas, what, what would you say are the biggest risks that organisations should be concerned about? I mean, obviously, they're all important, but is there anything specific that they should be you know, focusing on right now and, and, and how, how can they overcome them? Well, I think, as I say, I mean, for me, as a coach, from what I've seen, the, the wellness agenda is the one that is overlooked and actually it's potentially the one that has the most damaging effect. Yeah. If people can see the links between stress and scandal and the city's renowned for both those two things, then possibly we can start making more preventative measures that actually, I guess, help iron out and prevent future problems occurring. Yeah. In terms of coaching, if, if, if listeners want to find out more about you know, this whole area and maybe even take part in a, in a workshop themselves like you've just been you know, running today, you know, what's the best way of getting hold of you? Well, probably through my website or on LinkedIn. Um, my website is untapped-talent.co.uk. Um, we run quite a lot of um, group coaching um, uh, and workshops for corporates as well as doing individual work too. But that's probably a good place to start. That's great, James. Thanks so much for joining the show. And in fact, thanks to all my guests on this episode of the C-Suite podcast. So once again, that's Helena Morrissey, Jeremy White, Ben Page, Gary Baker, Jerry Fowler, Patrick Hudson, and of course, James Parsons just now. Thanks again to the team at the CFA Society of the UK for helping to set up all the interviews today. And if there's anything you'd like to comment on from today's episode, or indeed any of our previous shows, then please do like our Facebook page or follow us on Twitter or Instagram, and uh, you can get involved there. Those are all linked from the website website at csuitepodcast.com where you'll find all our previous shows and their show notes plus links to where you can subscribe on the likes of soundcloud and itunes which of course if you do use those then please do give us a positive rating and review to help us up the business charts and finally if you want to contact me to get involved in the series in any way then you can do that via the contact form on the site or via twitter using at russ goldsmith but for now thanks for listening and goodbye